On this week's Behind the Idea, we do our final round of our review of You Can Be a Stock Market Genius by Joel Greenblatt. Chapters 7 and 8 are more of a nuts and bolts of investment research, as well as a summary of Greenblatt's big picture view about investing. While it isn't as revelatory or insightful as far as how to invest, it offers a restatement of Greenblatt's view and a worthy finish to this classic. We break down our final thoughts on his final thoughts, as well as any last jokes or comments we want to cover. Have a listen. Welcome to Behind the Idea. I'm Daniel Schwartzman. And I'm Mike Taylor. This is the final edition of our special series breaking down one of the great investing books of our time or any other. Joel Greenblatt's You Can Be a Stock Market Genius. Last time, we talked about chapters 5 and 6, which featured more obscure, and in our view, less compelling areas of the market to invest in, like bankruptcies and stub stocks. But it also had some wise Greenblattisms. The last two chapters of the book are a little different, as they provide practical tips on how to actually find these sorts of stocks and how to do good research, as well as a brief philosophical conclusion. We'll review the chapters and also make our final remarks on this book, at least for now. Before we begin, Behind the Idea is the podcast that breaks down what makes great investment analysis work, using articles and ideas from the Seeking Alpha ecosystem and books by Joel Greenblatt. Nothing on this podcast should be taken as investment advice of any sort. We might discuss stocks on this episode, and if we do discuss any stocks we own positions in, we will disclose them at the end of the podcast. And today's episode is brought to you by Seeking Alpha Pro Plus. Try Pro Plus for 30 days free at seekingalpha.com slash pro plus. Wait, 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 Daniel, I have something else. Real quick, listeners, listen up. I just ran into the room. Man, out of jeez. Look, Daniel, don't interrupt. I, I want to talk to you about podcast ratings. Podcast ratings. My request, I have a request. I came in from the rain to make this ask of you, the listeners. Listeners, please rate us. We know you are out there, and we know that there are more and more of you all the time. Please support our efforts and help us get better at podcasting, if that's possible, with a rating on Apple Podcasts. And if you are truly inspired, please put finger to keyboard or phone touchscreen and leave us a review. Yes, with words, not just numbers, not just stars, words. Listen, we appreciate you all so very deeply, and we thank you for joining us on our investment philosophy adventure and we are always grateful for your support. So please rate us. <laughs> it's is it really support if it's not quantified? That's the question. Uh, tell me about just uh, ask our bosses what they think about that. <laughs> Am I right? <laughs> metrics. So Let's go into the metrics for, Q, for chapter seven. Yeah, metrics uh, for chapter Okay, sure. I give it four stars. Out of how many? Five. Okay, okay. What's the chapter seven's called? Seeing the trees through the forest. So 
What do you like about it? What what gives what gives you a positive feeling from chapter seven? I think an underrated aspect of any discussion of investment process is where to get your information. And speaking as an editor at Seeking Alpha, who has reviewed many, probably thousands of articles at this point in my career, I can say that attention to quality of sourcing may be one of the great overlooked aspects of a given do-it-yourself investor's research process. Many people seem to go to the quote page, look at some key ratios, maybe read the conference call transcripts, maybe glance over the financial statements and let the journey end there. And I think one of the great services that Joel Greenblatt is providing in chapter seven is articulating his own view on where you can get valuable investment information, how to generate ideas, and where each of these different sources fit into his hierarchy of sort of informational value. He also just advocates doing doing the research, which is something that not all investing how-to books emphasize. So just from the standpoint of quality of analysis and remembering the actual way that you can possibly develop conviction in your ideas is by actually doing some work. I think that this is a very valuable chapter and it's probably fairly easy to gloss over and underrate it, but I rate it quite highly on, on the basis of, I think, a coherent presentation of the types of information sources you should be looking at. One thing that I think is interesting as a concept, because he talks about where do you get your ideas, essentially. And he, I mean, he first talks about, he starts saying, am I the crazy cop that's going to get you killed uh, as my partner? Like, are you going to jump right into it? And he kind of reminds about the need to do the work, like you said, as well as proper diversification, which doesn't still concentrate, but he says, for example, don't make your portfolio all leap options. And so that's that's all well and good, but I think also interesting, where do you find them? And he talks about reading, talks about major newspapers. Uh, we can transpose those to online sources at this point, but you know, a lot of them still hold, whether it's Barron's, Wall Street Journal, The Times, Investor Business Daily, or you know, some of the trade publications. And then, if you know, a few newsletters, and then he explicitly talks about copying the masters and highlights a few investors that he likes to copy by looking at their 13Fs or whatever else, which I think is a, an interesting investing approach. And what I want to ask you is, Greenbot says, there's no problem stealing a good idea. You have to do your own work. He sort of emphasizes here the point of just because you're already screening by high quality investors doesn't mean you need to buy everything. You just need a good idea every now and then. So really kind of do the diligence. And I think that's a point that is underrated here because I don't think a lot of investors are really that I know of are really able of capable of concentrating as much as Greenblatt. I mean, he's really advocating a case of add, let's say a new position 
every, I don't know, I would translate this to maybe three months. And at the same time, you're not really holding on the, to the positions for more than a year or two. So we're talking about real concentration. But my question to you is this concept of stealing an idea. Presumably when you get an idea from another source, on the one hand, it's in the news, as it were, like people are aware of it. And this is something that's relevant, obviously, to Seeking Alpha, but also whether it is 13F or whatever else your approach is. Chances are, if you're getting it from somebody else, somebody else ha- obviously has the idea and other people can see that idea too. So on the one hand, if it's playing out already, then you feel like you're missing out. And on the other hand, if it's not playing out, then you're wondering if the mark, if the author is wrong. Like I'm just thinking of these psychological things. So what do you make of that idea of starting starting your research process, not stopping, but starting with somebody else's idea and with those sort of biases that come with it? I'm okay with it as long as you know what you're doing. I'm remembering Meb Faber, who I reference periodically on the podcast, who's a quantitative asset manager and a sort of one of the more public facing uh, people in the business. He tweeted or blogged one time that a naive replication of Berkshire Hathaway's equity securities portfolio from a certain over a certain long time frame would have basically doubled the performance of the S&P 500 and that would just be naively taking a look at Berkshire's holdings in the public stock market and buying a portfolio of those holdings and doing nothing else and the caveat there was that you'd have to be able to withstand some really sharp periodic drawdowns in the portfolio value. So that sounds good to me. If all you have to do is copy Warren Buffett and you actually outperform that it does work, you just have to know what to expect and you have to know what the strategy is that uh, the person you're copying is applying or you do need to develop your own conviction around the idea. I'm not opposed to this. And I think my general approach to investing is kind of define the terms of the idea at the outset. And then once you've made a decision, live by the terms of the idea. So we talked about my 200 day moving average, shorting the NASDAQ idea which worked out not great for me, but it was not a sophisticated idea and it was not based on proprietary analysis. It was 200 day moving average technical strategy. I'm not a person who's overly, and more recently, you know, Ray Dalio wrote a blog post and I went up buying gold in response to it. So I'm, I'm fine with it. I don't, I don't really have a problem with sourcing from other people's ideas. The only flip side to that is if I'm doing individual stock picking, I have very little conviction in anything where I haven't done all the work myself, which is a pretty big caveat, isn't it? It's a fair, fair caveat. It's sizable, but it it makes, 
four out of five caveat, but it makes sense. Yeah, I hear that. I mean, again, I think we come back to this a lot in the past as well, not just in reference to Greenblatt's book, but I think he does a fairly good job of emphasizing this. And we'll actually get to this in the next chapter too, but you got to know yourself. You got to know what works for you. And there are certain strategies that may or may not work for you, even among the ones that he presented. Obviously, he presented risk arbitrage, which he didn't like, but even bankruptcies, leaps, they weren't for everybody. It was just ideas for you to consider. And I think what makes the book hold together is that there's a common way of thinking about the market behind all of that. But yeah, I hear that. And so one good – and I I guess the other thing that I was trying to – lead towards with that question that I think about is that there's a spectrum of there's two sorts of spectrums. I think there's one sort of spectrum that is like everybody knows about something versus nobody knows about something. And we, we sometimes get binary. We assume, let's say there's one seeking alpha article. So everybody must know that this idea is out there that may or may not be true, but I think there's something to be said for, fewer people know about a given idea or more people know about a given idea. And so you don't have to necessarily, and there are ways to, there are things you can do to cue into market sentiment around a stock, whether it's short interest, whether it's reading different sites to see what bearish views or bullish views are or whatever. I think there are ways to back into that. Yeah, Um, sure. I remember the big short, those guys who needed the prime brokerage account or whatever. They, they Morgan Stanley wouldn't make the derivatives for them. Uh, Brad Pitt's buddies. They read the, their idea on uh, in Grant's Interest Rate Observer, which is a very widely read thing. Yeah, yeah right. And, well, and that's actually a really good example because then there's the other spectrum of everybody's talking about something. And then it's sort of, we've talked about this. I, I, I think of Apple, for example, and Apple has swung big over the years, even though it's, I don't remember if it's the biggest stock in the world right now, but it's been that or one of the top two or three for a while. And it's delivered outsized returns one way or the other over different periods. And that's where the, you know, the start point and end point matters, but also like you can have, of you and think that it's not priced in and doesn't necessarily mean you have to have an edge or a proprietary angle. It could just be you're making a bet and you think you're right. And then it plays out how it plays out. And so I think that's because the, the big short, you know, those guys, the movie and the book presented them as renegades, but I think I wasn't paying as much attention, but you look at the comparison to now, like people talk about recession fears a lot. And at some point, somebody hits on a theme, and in some cases, they're early, as was Michael Burry, and they have to either stick it out or they don't. But also, like, there's always going to be, it's that old thing of if you, you know, flip a coin and you get the different mutual fund managers, and eventually you'll get to the ones who are always right because they've won 10 coin flips. It's -hmm. something like, like, I'm not reducing analysis to that, but I'm just saying that there is part of the challenge with investing part of what makes it so interesting i think is that you have to sort of zone out all that that potential crosswind of you know what is really known versus not really known but then also what was some unique insight versus just i think i'm right and i'm going to wait it out and then it 
works or it doesn't. And so I think that's uh, also relevant when it comes to borrowing ideas or sourcing ideas from other people. Yeah, I think the important thing here is, so Greenblatt's obviously not, oh, here's maybe one more sort of nugget from that. I think I've kept coming back to Greenblatt's sort of mental flexibility and willingness to change his mind and ability to think in ranges and not get overly committed to one way of looking at something, certainly not one way of looking at market prices. And I think that his willingness to take someone else's idea, work with it, and then implement it if he thinks it's a good one is reflective of this kind of mental flexibility. And it probably enables him to avoid getting overly committed to his own ideas or to to avoid weighting his own thought process unduly heavily, privileging his own ideas over others. I think there's something to that. Like you should be humble or at least avoid a sort of self-attribution or illusion of control bias in making investment decisions and you shouldn't get stuck in your convictions too much. And I think that his flexibility with other people's ideas reflective of that sort of psychological advantage or dispositional advantage that he has. And I think that's why he encourages other people to be flexible about it. Yeah, it's almost a sense of the uh, mental maturity you need to be able to deal with that noise and that the, yeah, there's some projects. saying that's like they don't pay you extra for being for coming up with it yourself or doing your own work, or you don't get paid extra for that, right? And I think that's that's important. That this is this is all just again Greenblatt's kind of just he's blase about it. The stock market's just there. These things go up and down. There are opportunities to make money, and then. You can go home and spend time with your family. It doesn't have to be this way of life or this intellectual authenticity thing or any of the other sort of weird cultural trappings that we see some people get stuck in. And I like that. Yeah, it's refreshing, isn't it? Did you have anything on, any thoughts on any of the sources listed here? Did anything kind of jump out at you? I like the newspapers. I don't value line. I don't know. I haven't used value line. I don't know how present it is. I think it's an artifact of its time that he, he primarily lists phone numbers rather than websites. <laughs> and does. I'm glad he calls out Edgar. I think Edgar is if you had to narrow it down to one resource, I think Edgar would be a pretty good resource to have. Yeah. Um, Primary sources. We like that. We like go to the filings, go to SEC filings. Yeah. And then, you know, the newsletters, I was trying to turn around a letter I'm familiar with. We've hosted George Putnam's work on Seeking Alpha before. I'm, you know, the other newsletters, Outstanding Investor Digest, I guess, is no longer active. I was in researching for this episode. I looked looked it up and fell into 
the corner of Fairfax and Berkshire, that message board. Oh yeah. And there, you know, so there was some from pre great recession, there was some talk of why it was shut down and the managerial acumen of the team or whatever. I don't, Oh, uh, you can kind of dig it's like it a little hidden skit scandals of classic wall street in there. I, it's just sounded gossip, like the at least. gossip. I think I would, Characterize it as gossip around that. Oh, sounds juicy. That could be Marty, a good, what, good mini podcast series for us. The I untold like, story of. I think we. You've talked about this, listeners. If you would be interested in behind the idea classic, let us know because I think we could probably get some good material out of going and looking at past big stories or and past weird gossip, I guess as well. I would love that. I love past weird gossip. I even like current weird gossip, to be honest with you. <laughs> uh, okay, so one more thing I wanted to just quickly go through is there's a list of books at the end of the chapter. Okay. Uh, David Dremen, Contrarian Investment Strategies, The Next Generation, 1988. Ever heard of it? Ever heard I of ha- Dremen? I haven't. That one's new to me. Ben Graham, Intelligent Investor, Book of Practical Counsel. Heard of it? I, I have it. I've read it. I didn't remember it being called a Book of Practical Counsel, but otherwise have it. But it is one. We can agree on that. Okay, we both read that one. Hagstrom, The Warren Buffett Way, Investment Strategies of the World's Greatest Investor, 94. Haven't you read You read it. some Buffett biography. I read Alice Schroeder's The Snowball. Um, and then I would, there's, if anybody's, there was some, you know, Fintwit every now and then we'll go into a new round of Buffett commentary, critical versus supportive, et cetera. And somehow through that, there was surfaced a great interview with Alice Schroeder on Seeking Alpha. Oh. Um, I will pull up the name of the author in a second. I think it was somebody whose first name was Miguel. And it's just a really great interview about her time. Cause she's, she actually was on the street for a long time. She, you know, knew, mm-hmm. knew in, uh, insurance quite well. It's just a really it, like thoughtful interview. I really. Yeah. I'd like to read. I have not read that. Miguel Barbosa. Miguel, Miguel behind the behind the scenes with Buffett's biographer Alice Schroeder. So cool, yeah that that was worthwhile. Behind the scenes, kind of kind of like that title format. All right, <laughs> Robert Haugen, the new finance: the case against effective markets. <laughs> effective markets. Yeah, uh, you know new to one? me. New to me. New to me too. All right, Seth A. Klarman, Margin of Safety, 1991. We both read this one. We have read it, yeah. Good book. Good book, yeah. A little drier. Seth is not yeah, quite as, not as charismatic. Funny. <laughs> no dad jokes. <laughs> is there anything funny about that book? No. It's Seth super Cl- serious. Seth Klarman's humor style is more towards the, and when the world is ending, you'll at least have value in your stock portfolio. Yeah. Approach. It's a little Which bit. Is funny. I think he's probably a funny guy in person. He looks like he's a good, funny guy. 
Yeah, could I he could, just I be totally it. serious? I guess he could, and he might. He might not be that fun to hang out with. We'll find out someday. <laughs> Peter Lynch and John Rothschild once upon one. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> Try again. What? <laughs> <laughs> One up on Wall Street and beating the street. This is one of yours, right? You wear a Peter Lynch hat pretty often. Uh, beating the street, I read. I haven't read One Up on Wall Street, but I read Beating the Street. My wife's grandfather had a copy in his house. He was one of the influential people on my investing career, and I noticed that copy and read it. Like Peter Lynch because he is from the Massachusetts area where I grew up, and he Shouts up Burlington Mall, which I have brought up on this podcast as my hometown mall. I also, a friend of mine in Spain who has no experience in investing, but she has some money that she was interested in. I encouraged her and bought her a Spanish translation of Batiendo Wall Street, I believe. (laughs) That's good. Okay. I'm glad you shared that. Andrew Tobias, the only investment guide you'll ever need, 1996. Never heard of it. How about you? Heard of it, haven't read it. John Train, The Money Masters, 94. Nothing. Nothing, me too. So, but for listeners, I I think the books that we are familiar with that are on this list are excellent recommendations, and you should check them out. So I just wanted to share those, get our brief thoughts on the books themselves perhaps inspiration for future podcast cover perhaps before we go to chapter eight and sort of our conclusions on this book that we have talked about for four episodes and know and love i just wanted to remind you this episode is brought to you by pro plus uh which is a subscription product on seeking alpha it's a subscription membership what pro plus does is offer you unique content that gets more out of Seeking Alpha. Mike actually and his team lead the product. They produce great newsletters on short ideas, tech, income, and they're working on a small and microcap focused section. And so that's going to be exciting when it comes out. You also get exclusive ideas from some of our top authors. You get seven days early access to the top ideas that we publish, which are handpicked by our pro team. You get live alerts on some of our best content, which is also categorized by those themes. It's all offered, as far as I've always thought of it, it helps you get the best of Seeking Alpha, saving time so that you can spend more time going to the filings or going to do your own research. So if we're talking about sources of investing ideas, this is a pretty good one. And then you can do the work from there. We have a lot of data on the site to help you sort of fact check or think through ideas, see what the sentiment is, et cetera. So yeah, Seeking Alpha Pro Plus available. You can sign up for an annual subscription and get a 30-day money-back guarantee. So you can really check it out freely. It's at seekingalpha.com slash pro plus. That's seekingalpha.com slash P-R-O-P-L-U-S. Okay. Daniel. Mike. Well, to many, time is money. It's probably more universal to say that money is time. After all, time is the currency of everyone's life. When it's spent, the game is over. One of the great benefits of having money is the ability to pursue those great accomplishments that require the gifts of being and time. In fact, 
You can't raise a family or make your contribution to society without these gifts. So while money can't buy you happiness or even satisfaction, it might buy you something else. If viewed in the proper light, it can buy you time, the freedom to pursue the things that you enjoy and that give meaning to your life. I wrote that. Wow. No, that's Joel Greenblatt. That's that's Joel Greenblatt. It's one of the key paragraphs of chapter eight, the wrap up, ah, the philosophy, right. and the parting parting shots. So, I would encapsulate chapter eight as the final discussion on the investment philosophy, the the discipline and the disposition you need to adopt in order to be successful in the stock market. And I think the main takeaway for Greenblatt is do the homework, get involved, and make sure that you're adopting a strategy that's appropriate for you. And then ultimately keep in mind that the purpose of making your fortune is to enable you to do great things outside of the world of stock investing. And that to me is inspirational. It's really the only justification I can think of for focusing on the stock market is to give yourself sufficient freedom to explore the world and make great contributions to it. What do you think? Yeah, I agree. I I think it's one of the things that's most refreshing about Joel Greenblatt. I don't I think in his other book he's more explicit the little book that beat the market he's more explicit about giving back uh it talks about philanthropy or whatever else. And I think it's it it brings a few things it brings to mind in the beginning of the book he talked about how, you know, real diversification is other asset classes or putting money in the bank and it's just a reminder that investing is sort of it's something that comes a little bit further on in the financial process once you've cleared up your balance sheet, your debt, whatever else. It also, I think I've brought it up earlier, but I think about the approach that he espouses from the little book that beat the market on, which is a more quantitative quality factor. He basically, as I understand it, the magic formula, as he calls it, is just EV over EBIT to get your valuation and then ROIC, return on invested capital, to get you your your quality, your profitability. And so your EV over EBIT is enterprise value over earnings before income and tax. And I wonder, you know, and you think about that, and that almost seems like a betrayal of the green blad approach of diversification or of concentration and of special situations. But I think it's it's a sign again of that mental maturity you know, he, he shares his returns through the mid nineties and they're incredible. And he writes this book and, you know, he's doing pretty well. It's clear he enjoys investing for all this. And that's part of his point here is that you should be doing this because you kind of enjoy it as well. I think there's to your point of the only reason to invest. I think there's, you know, I will sometimes grapple with this myself personally, but I think there's, there is an intellectual satisfaction around the task there's something really fascinating about how markets work. There's something that is more game oriented. And if you can 
take it seriously, but not take yourself seriously. I think you can, there's some, whether or not you consider that better than the alternatives I leave up to each of you, but that to me is another justification. But I think about that and how that's, he's shown his willingness to kind of take down the stress levels. Cause I think he talks about when he's at a six or eight stock portfolio, one stock has a bad earnings report. All of a sudden his portfolio is down 10% and he's managing millions of dollars, if not hundreds of millions of dollars at this point. So like, that's a big deal. And that's a lot of heartburn, even for somebody with his experience and understanding of how things work. And so, yeah, I think it's, it's, it's uh it's a refreshing thing. I think it's something what you know, whatever the arena, there's something to be said for it's very easy to identify with what you've done and with your work and whatever else. And ultimately there are more important things. And so I think that's commendable. I agree. I agree, Daniel. I have one more I have only one more thing to hit. You have anything else you want to mention about chapter eight? I really think it's just, you got to read it and you got to kind of experience Greenblatt and his overall demeanor and bearing. You can see YouTube videos and get a sense. He is kind of remarkable. And that quote is, it is appealing to me. I think his, he is a little bit more honest and straightforward and not overly wrapped up in this stuff in the way that a lot of people get. He seems to care about getting rich and beating the stock market and all that, but it doesn't seem to be the complete dominating factor in his life. And that's something that I think we should all consider carefully. So if you have a parting shot, you should hit it. Otherwise there are two just like killer dad jokes that I think we could land on to end. Well, I just think I'll just say parting shot for the book is just, I think it's it's just an investing a book, again, to just kind of put it in that context. It's not as enjoyable as we found it. It's not, you know, insert your favorite novelist or your favorite journalist. It's clearly, I, I don't know if he had any help in writing this, but, you know, it, it's a pretty straightforward investing book i think he does a good job of balancing not getting too far in the weeds but also giving you some hands-on tools to try to apply this i think it's anybody can misuse it and go too far in getting excited about this stuff but i think he does a pretty good job of reminding all the work that goes into it and the appropriate caveats i just think it's I guess my only parting shot is i think it's clear when you read the book that he intended to title it the way he did i think the title is perfectly fine and i think people who complain about the title are just trying to put on their big boy pants and act like it's not a good title and it's a perfectly fine title i guess that's i thought i was going to go more profound but i ended up on a hot take so okay you can be a stock market genius good title says daniel schwartzman (laughs) you can put it on joel if you need a few blurb i'm here for you Good title, Daniel Schwartzman. <laughs> Four out of five stars. <laughs> Chapter seven, anyway. We didn't we didn't rate the whole book on four out of five on a five star scale. And we won't. Instead, I'm gonna share a dad joke uh, from the final pages of the book. This one is this book was meant to be viewed on many different levels. You'll see what I mean if you take it on an elevator. Heyo!
And then this other one I think is actually quite good, which is he's talking about being too invested in leaps or whatever. And he says, it's like what you would learn if you carried a lit match through a dynamite factory. You might live, but you're still an idiot. I think that that's a good motto. It's a good line. You might live, but you're still an idiot. I feel like that's something we should take with us, Daniel. Yeah, I think that's, I think you're right. I, I'd like to, I have a similar theme for my last joke, if I may, which is he throws in a glossary and buried in the glossary on the second to last page before you get to the index, there is village idiot. Someone who spends $24 on an investment book and thinks he can beat the market. Parentheses, just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Idiocy. That's a good place to end, I think. It's kind of the final counterpoint to the title, which is you can be a stock market genius, but to be one, first, perhaps, we all must start a little bit lower in the realm of the idiocy. It's like how all the best Bob Dylan songs are basically about nothing or about themselves in a loop way. That's what Joel Greenblatt's You Can Be a Stock Market Genius is about. It's a loop. Great loop. <laughs> we should probably... <laughs> I don't really That's stand by that take. That's nothing else to say. <laughs> that's where we need to go. I, I don't need to stand by that take, but that's where we need to go. Mike... Four weeks talking about Joel Greenblatt. It's been fun. It's been fun. And now it's get back to school, everybody. Summer's over. (laughs) Take care, buddy. All right. Bye, Mike. Thanks for sticking with us on Behind the Ideas four-episode journey where you can be a stock market genius. Miss any of the episodes? Check out our backlog from recent weeks to get the full eight chapters broken down into four podcast episodes. Ready for something else? We start interviewing guests and breaking down current investing ideas again next week. So stay tuned. This has been Seeking Alpha Production. Thanks for all your support. See you next time on the Ideas.